Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And by grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Josh, I'm going to pray for you if you'll come stand up here. Father, we are... Um, in need of your word this morning. We are in need of your grace this morning. Um, we, we speak every single week. We study uh, in our missional communities. We gather in our fight clubs, and we do these things, and it seems like repetitive, or, or maybe the message is the same, but it's because it's the same message we need week after week. We need to know your grace because it changes everything. It changes the way we live. It changes the way we have hope and joy. Speak through Josh this morning. Lord, I know you've already worked in him to prepare him um, uh, to bring your word, but prepare us. Give us hearts that want to hear truth, that want to be challenged, and want to be freed from discouragement and sin. We pray that in your name. Amen. Check, check, check. Okay, there we go. All right, go into Google, not right now, but sometime, maybe after uh, the gathering. Begin typing in, why are Christians, and before you've even finished typing in the word Christians, you'll notice that Google's autofill has already filled out the rest for you based on the most popular search. Which may or may not be something you guessed, but that being, why are Christians so mean? And a, a third was actually, why are Christian films so cheesy? Which is also a good question. <laughs> but number one was, why are Christians so mean? And this is a good question, because Jesus told his followers that they would be known for their love. And I think the reason that so many Christians in America, specifically, are not known for their love is because of their forgetfulness. What did they forget? They forgot the gospel. The gospel being the good news that Jesus saves us through his work on the cross. See, the gospel is all about salvation. And when we forget the gospel, what we have really forgotten is our great salvation. So today, we're going to focus on that, that word salvation. In fact, straight out of the gate, I'm just going to give you the main point of the sermon, what I want you to walk away from, and I'm going to build upon that. So the main point of the message today is that I would hope we would walk away from here today cherishing a new 
the salvation we have in Christ. I want to rekindle a deep gratitude for what Christ has done for us by dying on the cross for our sins. See, the truth is we so often do not cherish the salvation that God in his grace and mercy has given us and provided us through Jesus. Many of us have become apathetic to what God has done. We, we wane in our vigor and passion for Christ. We look for other alternatives to keep us out of the mundaneness of our lives. We look for things to try and take away our thoughts of, oh, this life is just, it's not really worth much. And it just turning to false saviors, really. Turning to things that we're trying to fill ourselves up with, but all the while we've left behind the true salvation that actually satisfies and we've turned ourselves to things that only leave us empty. We've left behind the great and true salvation too often, brothers and sisters. I myself, during preparation of this sermon, realized how often I take for granted the, the beautiful salvation I have in Christ. Well, what makes stories of salvation so spectacular anyway? Well, first, there has to be an issue, right? And it can't be something small or in, something small that's uh, really kind of worthless. Otherwise, the salvation is not worthy. For instance, if I'm in the kitchen and uh, washing dishes or whatever, Delilah's preparing food, and she comes up to me and says, hey, can you open this jar? And I'm like, sure, of course I can. I open the jar. It's not like at that moment she's going to fall on her knees and praise me. And, Thank you so much. You saved me. You opened this jar. That was amazing. That would just be silly. In order for something to be salvation... In order for something to be considered that, it has to be something big. When someone saves your life, you'll never forget that person. When someone opens a door, though, you'll probably say thank you and then move on. After a few minutes, you'll forget who that person even was or that you even saw them. See, no one goes to a Superman movie to watch him fly around the suburbs of the world to get cats out of trees. We go to Superman movies because we want to see him save the world from impending doom. So, salvation is only as great as the extent of what you have been saved from. Let me say that again. Salvation is only as great of the extent of that which you have been saved from. So we should cherish the salvation in Christ above all else because there's nothing greater. But I don't think we really understand our salvation that well. And that's why I want to start with a question that's going to help frame us and frame our understanding of salvation. Hopefully, like I said, in the end of the sermon, when you walk away, you would cherish it more as I've come to cherish it more over these past few days in my preparations. So the first question I want us to ask to build up this sermon is, what have we been saved from? Last week, Josh talked more in depth about what God saves us from. And we see some of those things in verses 1 through 4 of Ephesians. So we're going to just briefly look at those. Things like trespasses, sins, this world, the prince of the power of the air, referring to Satan, our flesh, wrath, and specifically wrath being God's righteous anger against evil and sin. And these are just a few things of uh, the long list of, of things that God has saved us from. But the primary thing that God has saved us from is his wrath. God is wrathful against us for the evil that we commit. We see this clearly in Romans 1. We'll read Romans 1, 
uh, 18 through 25, says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave themselves, gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So God was wrathful against mankind because they've turned away from him. And they've turned to false gods. They've turned to dark things. And yeah, he's wrathful. But why is he so wrathful? I mean, do we really deserve this? Do we really deserve God's wrath? And the answer is yes. If we knew how heinous our sin really was, we would all keel over in this moment into a ball, fall on the ground, and cry our eyes out. The shock of it would overwhelm us to the point of paralyzation. Unshakable fear would overtake us. The reality is that we will never fully comprehend how heinous our sin is, no matter how long we live. But I at least want to take a moment to try, like I said, to lay that foundation of a deeper understanding of our sin and understand how great this salvation really is. Thomas Watson wrote this. He said, Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. The more bitter our sin is, the more sweet the gospel will be. It's difficult for us to fathom the depth of our crime against God because we don't uh, value him as much as we should. If we valued, valued him correctly, we would see the depth of our sin more clearly. You know, we would all be up in arms if we heard about the murder of an innocent child. But rebelling against God, that's not that bad. Does that really deserve his wrath? But rebelling against God is the worst possible thing any of us could do. Sin against God offends him because he is your creator. Sin inhibits our ability to display God's image as we were designed to do by God. And moreover, the biblical doctrine of God as creator teaches us that God continues to sustain his creation and hold it into existence. In sinning, we misuse and abuse the existence God has given us in which he sustains us moment by moment. C.S. Lewis expressed these uh, truths clearly uh, in his quote. He says this, Indeed, the only way in which I can make real to myself what theology teaches about the heinousness of sin is to remember that every sin is the distortion of an energy breathed into us, an energy which, which if not thus distorted, would have blossomed into one of those holy acts whereof God did it and I did it are both true descriptions. We poison the wine as he decants it into us. We murder a melody he would play with us as the instrument. We caricature the self-portrait he would paint. Hence, all sin, 
whatever else it is, is sacrilege. To try and put this into perspective, I want you to imagine with me a few scenarios. Scenario number one, I go to a local gift store. I'm looking around. Maybe I'm over in the coffee cup aisle, you know, looking at uh, Peanuts coffee cups because my uh, mom loves Snoopy. And then I notice over in the corner of my eye that there's an area for postcards. And I go and wander over there, and I see a postcard with a picture of Mo and Lisa on it. Nearby on the counter, I notice there's some scissors there. I think, well, I might as well take these scissors. I take the scissors, and I plunge a hole through the picture of the Mona Lisa. Now, what's going to happen to me? Well, number one, people around me are probably going to think I'm a little weird, maybe a little off my rocker. Number two, they're gonna, the person behind the counter is probably going to say, hey, guess what? Uh, you owe me $3. Simple as that, right? I might be embarrassed, walk away. That's it. Not a big deal. Scenario number two. I am at the, how do I pronounce this? It's, yeah, exactly, the Louvre. Thank you for the pronunciation help there. In the museum in France, which happens to display the original Mona Lisa, which, if you don't know, was valued at $100 million in 1962. Now, the Mona Lisa is usually behind bulletproof glass. And, uh, you know, you wouldn't be able to get close to it because there's this little banister or sort of a wooden thing that, that protects it so you can only stand like five feet away. Um, but in this scenario, let's say it's uh, not covered in bulletproof glass. Let's just say a couple of security guards are standing by. And there I am in the midst of the crowd gathering around this world-renowned painting. And I have scissors in my pocket. I jump over the wooden banister. I charge at the painting quicker than the guards can stop me. And I plunge that pair of scissors as deep as I can into a $100 million painting. Well, what do you think happens to me in that scenario? Well, I get tackled by a security guard, more than likely immediately arrested, taken to a jail, and then tried, probably a huge fine, maybe some prison time, and uh, it's no good. I'm also probably going to show up on uh, the world news, and people are going to know my face, and for the rest of my life, I'm going to have a tarnished reputation as the guy who plunged scissors into the Mona Lisa. So, The difference in these scenarios is one is valued higher than the other. And why is that? One is the original. One is more important. One is only $3, one's $100 million. One is a one of a kind. The other is there's plenty of them. The original is more valuable. And that's why it would be such a horrible crime for me to do that. We understand this inherently. Flowers are better than the weeds that grow, right? We appreciate them more. And we appreciate uh, a dog more than a flower. If I go over to my neighbor's house and pluck out their flowers, they might be a little annoyed, tell me to stop, but I have to go over to my neighbor's house and kick their dog. They're going to call the police, probably, and I'm going to get in trouble. What's more valuable than a dog? A human life. You kill a dog, it is a serious crime but not nearly as serious as killing another human. So what then? Can we put a price tag on God? 
$100 million? God, who created the flowers, who created the dog, who created the human, who created everything, who sustains it all, and yet it's not such a serious crime that we've rebelled, neglected, rejected, spit in his face. No, it is. It's the most heinous of all crimes. We have to understand the depth of our sin before we can understand the beauty of our salvation. Every nail that was driven into his wrists and his feet, Jesus, when he died on the cross, you can imagine yourself pounding those in as the Roman soldier because he went to the cross for your sins. The most valuable entity, the most valuable being is God. And we, we sinned against him. He's the one who's giving you breath right now. Jesus sent his son to the cross for us, even though we rebelled against him. That's just hard to fathom. The truth should stagger us all over again with the grace of God in our lives. When we realize the greatness of our sin, the fact that we deserve eternal, eternal punishment and separation from God. But in verses 4 and 5 of Ephesians, it says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. So the answer to our first question, what you've been saved from, is that. We've been saved from the wrath of God. We've been saved from eternal punishment. A well-deserved punishment. We would say that anyone who commits a crime against another human, murders another human, deserves the punishment that they receive when they go to prison. So we deserve the punishment of eternal wrath. But thankfully, God has made a way. He's paid that by his son, Jesus. But why did, why did God save us? That's our next question that builds up to the major point. What purpose were we saved for? We've seen already in our passage, that God saves us because of his great mercy and love. But I want to zoom in on verses 6 and 7 just for a brief moment to understand even further why God saves us. So let's read those together. 6 and 7. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So humankind rebels against God. They turn their back against him. They worship other false gods. And what does he do? He sends his son to die for us. He responds to a cosmic crime with infinite love. Christ takes the punishment in our place. He takes it all upon himself. And we are free. And and. No, verse number six says, and not only that, this is where it gets even crazier, because he didn't just save us, like, okay, I saved you, you're good to go now, but then he seats us with him in the heavenly realm. Do you know where Jesus is sitting right now? He's sitting on a throne. What does that mean? We are sitting on a throne. And one day, obviously right now we're on earth, but in the future sense, we will be sitting him with him on the throne. It says in the uh, scriptures, we will rule with him. 
You don't just go up to someone and smack them in the face and then they say, I love you. That doesn't happen. You don't just murder someone's family member and they forgive you so easily, so freely. But that's what God did for us. And then he goes a step further and seats us with him. He lets us to be with him. Colossians 1, 19-22 says this, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making, place, ma- making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled and body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He has bought us to himself. He has saved us to himself to be reconciled to him. So God is showcasing his love to us by doing that. In verse number seven, it talks about how he, not only did he first draw us to him, but then verse seven, go back to that for a moment, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us. In the coming ages, that's talking about forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, the immeasurable, not measurable, you can't count it, you, there's no way. Graces of God, kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You put something behind a showcase because you think it's of value, and you want people to see it and say, look at that. That's amazing. God shows, showcases his love and mercy so that we can praise him forever. In Ephesians 1, 5 through 6, we've already actually gone through this, but it just sets this into place so well. It says, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. So he saves us with love and mercy and grace, and he saves us to himself to be with him forever, to be reconciled. But then also, he gets glory in this. He is honored by the fact that we are so thankful to him that he saved us from such a heinous sin. So the answer to our second question, for what, God, for what purpose did God save us? So he could reveal his amazing nature, his deep love, and in doing so, be praised for it. It's like a child, when loved and cared for by their earthly parents, will praise their parents and be their biggest fan. Good parents are the heroes of children, and the children praise their parents. How much more should we then praise God, since he is our father, and he has done so much for us? So we understand what we have been saved from, and why we have been saved. Now the next question that will help build this case. How have you been saved? Verses 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We've been saved by grace through faith. Grace is the unmerited favor that God gives us through Jesus' sacrifice. But we see it here tied to faith. Grace is the agent of and faith is the means by which God saves us. So we must have faith in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross in order to be saved by the grace that overflows from his sacrifice. The sacrifice which was made in that grace 
wipes away our sins. So grace and faith are gifts from God. We see that here. It says it is not, or it is the gift of God. Not the results of works, so that no one may boast. So we see in many verses, though, this reality, this idea that grace and faith are from God, they're a gift, and that nothing we do has saved us. We don't have anything to boast in. Romans eleven six says, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. 2 Timothy 1, 9 says, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Titus 3, 5, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So what does this all mean? This means that despite, despite your best days and your worst days, you are saved if you believe in Christ. First, I want to focus in on the best days. Despite your best days, Christ saved you. On that day, you feel great because everything went well. You read your Bible, you prayed, you were kind to others. You drew close to God that day. You did. But you didn't do anything to garner any more salvation for yourself or any more of God's love for yourself. Your good works have nothing to do with your salvation. Rather, they overflow from a saved life. Yeah, let's strive for those good days. We all want those good days. That's the reason why God saved us, so we could have those days where we're worshiping and praising him and loving others well. But the Pharisees in Jesus' ministry were rebuked because they were the ones who thought they had, were having the good days all the time. Look at me. I'm so great. I have the perfect life. I worship God. I always pray. I always do this and all that. But they had missed the entire point. They thought because of their good works that they were loved and cherished more by God. But they were blind to their own sin. You see, even on your best days, you are still a sinner in need of grace. No matter how good of a day you have, God's love is still the same. He loves you not because of anything you did, as if you could impress him. That's like a, a, a child, you know, the, your child stacking blocks on top of each other and then calling you in the room and say, look at me, I can stack blocks. Well, as, your parent, as a parent, you, of course, you're going to say, well, that's great, good job. That doesn't make you love that child anymore, though. That's the kind of thing we do with God. We're thinking, oh, my little... What the things I do in my life are so important that God's going to look down and be impressed by them? No, that's silly talk. God's not impressed by anything we do. God is the most impressive being in the world. How could he be impressed? I'm not impressed when a child stacks a block on another block. You wouldn't love them more if you were a good parent. That's the same way with God. He doesn't love us anymore because of the things we do. In fact, every good thing we do is only from him in the first place. So we're, we're saved despite our best days. We have nothing to boast in. 
we're also saved despite our worst days. No matter how bad your day goes, if you were a jerk to your coworker, you intentionally rejected God because of your anger, you yelled at your spouse, you've neglected prayer and the word of God, you've been wasting your time on meaningless pursuits, no matter how ugly the day looks, your salvation is no less secure. The love of God for you is no less than the day it was before or before that. We have no credit to take in our pursuit of God. It's all a gift. I hate it when believers would give such horrible advice such as this. Well, you just need to muster up some more faith. You just need to have more faith. Your, your life's not very good because you just don't have enough faith. Be like me. I have faith. Look at my life. But right there in the verses 8 and 9, we see that faith is a gift. We had nothing to do with it. Josh spoke last week about how Christ raised us from the dead. If you're dead, you can't raise yourself. If you collapsed and are unconscious, you can't resuscitate yourself. What makes you think you can muster up enough faith to love God more? You can't. All you can do is surrender. Pray that God would give you more faith and know that he loves you regardless and that's only by what Christ has done that you've been saved in the first place. We hear Christians lament about how they've gone too far this time or their sin is too great. They've forgotten, though, what they've been saved from, that despite how many sins they commit for the rest of their life, Christ is still king, he is still victorious, and they have victory no matter what. This changes everything, this idea, this truth in scripture. It changes everything because it sets apart Christianity from other, every other religion. Because every other religion says, hey, guess what? Climb that mountain to God with your good works. You have to do it. You have to have enough faith. You have to have enough grace. You have to be a good enough person. Do that. Climb that mountain to God. While in Christianity, as followers of Jesus, God says, no, no, no. You can't climb this mountain. There's no way you can climb it. You could never muster up enough faith. You could never have enough good works. I'm going to send my son down the mountain to come bring you up it with his good works. So why are Christians so mean? Why do we take so lightly the great salvation that we've been given? Because we forgot where we came from. We forgot how needy we are for God's grace. We forgot that we're all in the same boat and that none of us is any better than the other. And we've each committed the most heinous of crimes. You're worse, or if not worse, you're just as bad as the child molester who lives down the street. You've committed the most heinous crime. You've deserted a God who created you. I know that's hard to take in, and people may not like that, but it's true. The ultimate cosmic sin to rebel against God. I remember 
just recently in MC, I was having a discussion, and um, I was talking about how these guys in London or the UK somewhere are starting to dress up like dogs in dog suits, grown men acting like dogs on a pretty regular basis because they want to escape to some alternate reality in their mind and they even have owners and things and it's really strange really strange and uh, I remember thinking in my head I was like oh my goodness those people make me sick it's just so annoying how can they be so depraved they think being acting like a dog's gonna be cool or like they're gonna go dress up in dog suits or I don't know and there's all sorts of things like that guys I've watched a lot of Weird TV shows that a lot of them makes me watch. Not really, they're not that bad. But like, <laughs> there's a guy dressing up as a young child, a young female child, and then he's get, he got adopted by another family. There's strange things like that all the time. And the mentality for us, if we're not careful, is to think, wow, those people are weird. That's really messed up. That's sick. But my good friend Jeremy, he kept me on track. He said, he said, you know what? I can't remember exact words verbatim, but he basically said, we shouldn't think of those things and just say to these people, oh, you're so gross, you're so messed up, that's so nasty, because we're just as gross, we're just as messed up, we're just as nasty. Sure, we're not going around and putting on dog suits. I mean, maybe, I don't know, some of us do some pretty messed up things because we're all sinners. I'm sure if someone could uh, scope into each of our brains, we'd be very embarrassed by what people saw. So the point is, like, those people need grace just as we needed grace. And I'm so glad that Jeremy said that because at that moment I was being like a Pharisee. I was forgetting my great salvation that I committed the most heinous crime. So I want to leave you with this, guys. Like I said, I wanted to build up to the point and just leave you ultimately, hopefully, wrap it up in, in a nice package that you can walk away realizing that for those of you who are in Christ, you know, take heart that you have an amazing salvation far greater than your mind can comprehend. Try to dwell on this daily and revel in the grace and mercy that you've been shown and know that you have nothing to boast in because salvation from beginning to end had nothing to do with you and everything to do with Christ. Those of you who may not be in Christ or have not made that step, for so long you've been a slave to sin. You've turned to so many other things that have only left you empty and lead to worse things. There is hope for you if you believe in Jesus. He can give you faith. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for this wonderful salvation we have. I hope, if anything, that we walk away today just relishing the amazing grace that you gave us despite our heinous crimes. Lord, as we learn more and more the depth of our sin, I ask that we would remember more and more the depth of your grace, that it over and supersedes that, that it is better, that your grace is sufficient. Thank you so much that you've saved us, Lord. May we not forget how great a salvation we have. May we take that to the rest of the world. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.